one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. The streams of winter. Live stream 11. Jamie Lannister. Hello and welcome to The Streams of Winter. I'm Yoke Boy and we are Radio Westeros. Thanks to everyone for tuning in to our live stream this afternoon. Today we'll be talking about a character who many of us grew to love during the course of the novels. Jamie Lannister, everyone. Is this guy a hero or a villain? What bound him so unexpectedly to Brienne of Tarth? And what does the future hold for the pair? To help me answer these questions and more, here's the other half of Radio Westeros, Lady Gwyn. Hey everyone, thank you so much for joining us. Really excited to uh, get into some Jamie Lannister following on from our Brienne livestream last week, which uh, was a good one. And uh, very happy to welcome today's guest to the podcast. We have uh, K.W. Dent, Kyle from Blood of the Podcast joining us here. Welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me so much, guys. It's uh, really cool to be here. I tweeted earlier this week how uh, you guys, Radio Westeros, were the very first fandom uh, podcast that really introduced me to this rabbit hole that we all kind of exist in together. So, uh, yeah, really cool to be here today. Oh, well, thank you for that. And we are happy to have you. And quick reminder about spoilers for everyone. We do talk about, obviously, the books, the sample chapters. And unlike in our regular episodes, we do sometimes venture into uh, TV show comparisons. So spoilers, everything. And with that said, time to get started. Over to you, Yoke Boy. Yeah, so let's begin. I've cooked up a good selection of questions about Jamie Lannister. And to start, in A Storm of Swords, Jamie is captured with Brienne by the Bloody Mummers and he had his hand cut off while trying to defend her. Jamie entered the story as a scoundrel, but it's around this point that he becomes more sympathetic. It says, when Jamie opened his eyes, he found himself staring at the stump of his sword hand. The hand that made me Kingslayer, the goat had robbed him of his glory and his shame, both at once. Leaving what? Who am I now? So, to what extent did Jamie losing his hand provide us with a tabula rasa or fresh start kind of moment? And I'm going to split this into two. First of all, how was this a blank slate for Jamie in himself, Lady Gwyn? 
Uh, well, I think the opportunity to answer that question, who am I now, is pivotal for Jamie. Uh, he could have let it pass him by. He could have just continued to be the person that he was, defined wholly by other people's expectations of him, right? And he could have done so comfortably, falling back on his identity as a Lannister. This is a status that would have ensured him a life of privilege and power, whether he had a sword hand or not, really. That would have been the easy way out. And maybe the old Jamie Lannister would have been expected to take that path. But instead, he chose to reflect upon his life and ultimately reject that family in favor of fulfilling his duties as a Knight of the Kingsguard. Yeah, really agree. And, and Tabula Rasa is a perfect um, way to put it, right? Rebirth, fresh start, the things that phrase deals with. Jamie Lannister's identity is tied to you know both his family and his status as a knight. He serves his family through that status. However, Jamie struggles through the difficulty of maintaining vows within a system that has turned knighthood into this political position. We see the challenges of this uh, specifically in the case, famously in the case, of him murdering Ares, a king he was sworn to protect who was intent on murdering thousands of people. Despite saving thousands, Jamie was dubbed the Kingslayer, in part because he violated the oath of his political office. How do you actually keep your vows? How does one keep vows when your position of power is tied to politics in this way? As we see, this serves as this major indictment to the status of knighthood in Westeros. The knighthood Jamie recognizes at the start of A Song of Ice and Fire is wrapped up in this system that, by design, will ultimately corrupt the vows of a knight. His sword hand, his glory, and his shame are wrapped up in the social structure that he belongs to. In this way, Jamie's hand sort of serves as this proverbial Gordian knot that ties him to that system. And the cutting off of that hand, in a not-so-perfect metaphor, serves as the cutting off of the Gordian knot that frees him to pursue a life different from before. So, excellent answers. And the second half of the question, I wanted to know how this was a blank slate for the audience to reassess Jamie. And I'll begin. I think that Jamie's moment in the bath with Brienne was the big one for me. He's covered in dirt and filth. He's lost his hand. He's confessed that he held secret his defiance of Ares and the wildfire plots where Jamie saved King's Landing. And as the dirt is washed away, Jamie is cleansed. And on a subconscious level, it's the perfect way to introduce a clean slate for Jamie and draw a line underneath his previous sins, a catalyst for internal change. Right. And, and that's a good point, too, with the bathhouse. And I think what um, what George is, is so really good at doing in Jamie is maybe the perfect character for this. He's really good at making the audience want something and then giving it to them. Only he delivers it in a way that makes his audience reassess what they originally thought. After Jamie pushes Bran out of the window at the end of Bran, uh, Bran 4, I think it is? 2? Uh, I don't remember. Anyway, uh, after Jamie pushes Bran out of the window, a first-time reader probably goes, Oh my goodness, I hope something terrible happy happens to that Jamie guy. And then George does terrible things to Jamie and it doesn't come across as justice. It comes across as terrible. And as a reader, you're sitting there going, whoops, I shouldn't have wanted that. Um, I think George is really good at that. Yeah. 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 I think you're right. You know, as, as George himself would put it, we are bloodthirsty and sick people. But, you know, we, we, we crave vengeance really because our 
brains kind of crave that dualism. Things are black or white. They're good or they're bad. But A Song of Ice and Fire really challenges us to see the shades of gray. And boy, is Jamie Lannister ever gray. You know, we're presented with a soiled knight who killed the king and crippled a little boy. And it really doesn't get much better from there in Game of Thrones. Uh, we got his hot-headed ambush of Ned in King's Landing, which results in the death of Jory Cassell and others. Uh, then we have lines like Ned recalling Jamie Lannister's smile and Jory dead in his arms, which breaks my heart every time. And later, Cat at River Run is talking with Jamie while he's imprisoned there and thinks there's nothing here but arrogance and pride and the empty courage of a madman. I'm wasting my breath with this one. If there was ever a spark of honor in him, it is long dead. And yet, even in Game of Thrones, we get hints, things like Tyrion thinking about his big brother's affection and how he was the only person that ever showed him any kindness to uh, his long overdue explanation to Catelyn about Brandon Stark's death. These tiny hints uh, that there might be something more to this character, but it's really not until we get his point of view in A Storm of Swords and his introspection following his maiming that we really begin to get a sense of the depth of this character, and then we can begin to reevaluate him. I wouldn't say with a blank slate entirely as readers, but uh, with ever-increasing nuance, maybe. Okay, great answers. And on the subject of his sword hand that's now missing, in A Feast for Crows, Jamie agrees to lift the Siege of Riveron under the condition that he can take the king's justice ill in pain with him, and on the journey, Jamie begins sparring with the mute Illin. Illin can keep secret Jamie's failures, and so he is the perfect training partner. So, do we think Jamie's training will lead him to become a top class swordsman with his Uyghur hand? Yeah, what do you think, Kyle? Yeah, I think, um, I think so. And I think many have pointed out over the years that core and half hand seems like a very potential archetype for Jamie Lannister, especially with respect to the retraining of his sword hand, right? Corrin was forced to learn how to use his offhand after losing half of his hand in a fight with the Free Folk. In John A. to Clash of Kings, it reads, the tale of how he had taught himself to fight with his left hand after losing half of his right was part of his, uh, was part of his legend. It was said that he had handled the blade better now than he ever had before. Hard to reread that um, on rereads and not think of Jamie, right? Um, I think it is also interesting to consider, and something I just thought of as we were kind of preparing for this, it's interesting to consider that at the time Jamie loses his sword hand in A Storm of Swords, George was still intending to implement a five-year time gap at the time before the events of Feast and Dance. As far as speculation goes, I think it's relatively safe to say that if that time gap existed, Jamie would have spent that time training his offhand, his now left sword hand. As we all know, George dropped the five-year time gap for a new, so many reasons. Uh, so instead, we get to actually see Jamie training with Ilan Payne, which I think works very well on many levels. Um, either way, I think George has kept his original plan for Jamie's abilities relatively similar. I don't think that within the story he's going to regain the prowess he once had or even would have had with a five-year gap. 
But I do think George intends to surprise the reader with Jamie's abilities during potentially some kind of duel or fight, which I'm sure we'll talk about later. Yeah, I agree with Kyle that George was never going to give Jamie back his full power, let's say. Such a move would undo the sort of penance that Jamie paid for his sins. Again, the loss of his hand, the very one that he pushed Bran with, was poetic and allowed us and himself to reevaluate who Jamie Lannister really is. So why would George then reinstate his ability to the to the max? I think George wants to make Jamie a reasonable fighter for future plot lines, but his loss of elite level ability was a shorn part of his identity. Yeah, um agreed actually. I had never really thought of it quite that way, but I think it's a great point because Jamie's elite skill is actually specifically tied to that vanity that was, as you said, a part of his original identity. So I think that's a great point. Okay, so moving on, Jamie saves Brienne from the bear at the bear pit and then entrusts her with redeeming his honor by sending her on the quest to find Sansa Stark with the sword Oathkeeper. He even assaults Redron at Collington for comparing her to the bear. Here's the quote. Jamie's golden hand cracked him across the mouth so hard the other night went stumbling down the steps. His lantern fell and smashed and the oil spread out, burning. You are speaking of a high-born lady, sir. Call her by her name. Call her Brienne. So what exactly does Jamie see in Brienne, someone he himself had taken to insulting not so long ago? What do they have in common and why is she a catalyst for change in him? Kyle. Yeah, there's, uh, God, so much to say about Jamie and Brienne, but to stick to the point I mentioned earlier about like knighthood as uh, a system, right? Systemic knighthood. Uh, we talked earlier about how the loss of Jamie's hand in a way freed him from the corrupted system knighthood. Brienne is the perfect foil to the corrupted system because she is so specifically rejected by it. Brienne doesn't fit in in Westeros. She is a woman who does not fit the gender norms of her society. She is mocked and berated, including by Jamie, as you said, and she's not a knight yet. But because of this, Brienne is able to follow her vows, not because it is required by her political posi position, but because she actually just believes them to be right. I think Jamie recognizes this in Brienne, and if you think about when Jamie was younger, he wanted to be Sir Arthur Dane because that idea was compelling, but he was run through the grinder that is the Westerosi court and he came out closer to the Smiling Knight. But in Brienne, I think Jamie sees the kind of knighthood that he originally once believed in as a child. I think George follows up on this many times. I mean, it's Jamie's entire arc, basically. But one of my favorite ways is uh, in back-to-back -back chapters in Feast. And if we look at it, in Jamie 1, it says, Unbidden, his thoughts went to Brienne of Tarth, stupid, stubborn, ugly wench. He wondered where she was. Father, give her strength. Almost a prayer. In Cersei 2, the very next chapter, it says, Unbidden, a memory came to her. She then recants the story of Lord Riker, making a jest about Tywin. Tywin runs the man out of the room, using only his unflinching eyes. Cersei then thinks that it will be her eyes they run from now. These are the only two times the word, un the word unbidden is used in A Feast for Crows. 
And I think George is using unbidden memories to show what is now important to each character, Jamie and Cersei. Cersei wants to be Tywin, and Jamie wants to be Brienne. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I think it's very telling uh, that Jamie asks the father to give her strength rather than the mother. The father seems to represent this sort of, you know, strength, the strength of battle, wisdom and protection, uh, while the mother offers a more gentle and merciful brand of protection. So he's he's almost he's asked recognizing her uh, knighthood almost, I think, with that. So I think you nailed it when you say what Jamie sees in Brienne is this particular kind of knighthood. It's idealized and idealistic, something that he thought was lost to him when he joined the Kingsguard. Remember, he says to her, it was the white cloak that soiled me, not the other way around. But once he gets to know her in the way that really only shared trauma can induce, he realizes that she embodies what's possible for someone who maintains those ideals. I mean, she's she's not even a man. She's totally outside the, the, the boundaries of what knighthood is supposed to be, and yet she's really living uh, those ideals. So he has the opportunity to see himself as she does at the beginning. It's not really flattering until she gets to know him better and then their mutual respect, which is initially based on kind of martial things, you know, they respect each other as fighters, that that kind of grows. And as I said in the stream last week, Cersei sees Jamie as a reflection of herself. And to a certain extent, Jamie has come to accept that that's what he is and that's all he is ever going to be. But Brienne shows him his potential. And through her He's able to believe that he can be more, uh, more than just an extension of House Lannister. And this is going to lead directly to his rejection, first of Tywin and then of Cersei herself. Excellent. And then the reader really wants Jamie to be a good guy. We all felt that somewhere along the journey. But at Riverrun, we see Jamie threaten to fling Edmure's baby from a catapult. How much of this threat is sincere and how much is just him sailing on Lannister reputation to get the result that he wants? Yeah, uh, not a good look on Jamie, obviously, um, but I, I don't know if this is a hot take or not. I don't think Jamie would have done it due to the vows he swore Catelyn Stark, and we're going to talk about that here a little bit later, I know. I think Jamie knows he won't have to follow through on this threat because he knows his enemies will just believe the worst in him regardless, right? So um, interestingly, what he's really doing here is threatening violence against Tully's in order to avoid actual violence against Tully's. Words are wind, actions are stones. What do you guys think? Yeah, I completely agree. I love the point about avoiding violence by threatening violence. That's so Jamie and the fact that he's capitalizing on his own reputation is also just so Jamie. So yeah, definitely agree with that. I don't think he would have done it. <laughs> Some Something else that I had thought of that's kind of interesting too is in threatening violence is not not good. It's a bad thing to do, kids. Don't, don't do that. But um, it is in this weird way, Jamie taking agency of this reputation he's always fought against because it's always been such a negative. And here he says, okay, you think these horrible things about me believe it. And then I don't have to do more horrible things. So it's in this very strange way, him taking agency back of that, um, at least in this one example. 
I, I agree. He's using this reputation that's going to follow him around regardless. Right. Exactly. This Tywin-esque yep. idea that's following him. So either way, yeah, as you said, it's not a good look, but right. ultimately it might, it might have all been for a peaceful resolve. Mm-hmm. So a quick shout out to our patron Agnieszka and her husband Boris celebrating a birthday soon. And now in A Feast for Crows, we learn that Brienne, following a noble defence of the orphanage against more bloody mummers, is now a captive of the Brotherhood without banners. In Dance, we see Brienne approach him unexpectedly at Pennytree after agreeing to be Lady Stoneheart's quote, sword, in order to save Pod and Hyle. Jamie had previously sent his regards before the Red Wedding, but this fact has been misconstrued as Jamie having personal investment in Rob's death. So, now in this situation, do we think that Jamie Lannister is in real definite danger or do we think that he is wearing some kind of plot armor which is going to see him safe? Uh, yes, De- a danger. Yes, uh, yes, yes to plot armor too. I think not death. Uh, expect the winds of winter might, in some way, ultimately mirror a storm of swords, where we saw Jamie and Brienne experiencing kind of trauma and self-discovery as they journey through the Riverlands together. But uh, it's def- destiny definitely my opinion, lies elsewhere. So death is not on the menu for Jamie. So yeah, plot armor. <laughs> yeah, it is. Um, Jamie definitely has plot armor here. It's going to be a dangerous situation and it could be uh, potentially traumatic and it will be dangerous, as you said. But Jamie's arc is nowhere near complete. There's so much more that the author has put in play for him to accomplish and do that. You know, you do expect him, both him and I think Brienne will make it out of this one. Yeah, I have to agree. I th- I think the triangle we talk about with Cersei, Brienne, and Jaime, their their arcs kind of hinge upon each other. And I think if you took one away, the whole thing's going to fall flat and not make any sense. I think that they've got some kind of shared destiny that will lead us right up to maybe before the denouement of the series. So, in his situation with a BWB. What do we think is likely to happen to him? How could Jamie Lannister possibly escape this situation that he's found himself in? Yeah, it's it's got to be a trial by combat. Not only does it just make logical sense in this situation, but Jamie's brother has been defended in a trial by battle twice, and we expect Cersei to be defended in a trial by battle sometime in wins. So it seems like that's the the option here. Oh, yeah, I think and that's that's a very key parallel. And more to the point, Jamie's and Cersei's trials in the Winds of Winter are probably actually going to occur in parallel in real time. Yeah, great. Yeah, that's a great point. They absolutely might or even likely will. Yeah, that would be. I never thought about that. I've thought about this subject so many times, but there's so many parallels between Jamie and Cersei. That's really good thinking. So... We talked about this last week, but let's go there again with a new guest. How could Jamie and Kat's vows be relevant? And I'm just going to read one of these vows. 
Swear that you will never again take up arms against Stark nor Tully. Swear that you will compel your brother to honour his pledge to return my daughters safe and unharmed. Swear on your honour as a knight, on your honour as a Lannister, on your honour as a sworn brother of the King's Guard. Swear it by your sister's life and your father's and your son's, by the old gods and the new, and I'll send you back to your sister. Refuse, and I will have your blood. Yikes. Uh, yeah, there are definitely two major promises made in these vows, and gosh, I think these are going to come up so much in wins, and we're going to talk about them right now. Um, again, two major promises made here. Jamie is first, Jamie is to compel Tyrion to return Catelyn's daughters. And then second, Jamie is not to take up arms against Stark or Tully. If questioned on these vows by Lady Stoneheart, which we assume is going to be pivotal in wins, I believe Jamie will argue that he has in every way done what he reasonably could have to maintain both promises. First, Sansa goes missing before his arrival in the capital and Arya has been missing for multiple years at this point. However, he tasks Brienne with locating the girls if they can in fact be found, even going so far as to arm her with Oathkeeper, a sword reforged from House Stark's traditional greatsword and named with the intent of honoring the promises Jaime made. Second, second promise. Jaime has yet to take up arms against Stark or Tully since making this vow, and it's not that he hasn't specifically had the opportunity. I think Jamie dealing with the Siege of Riverrun is specifically George showing that Jamie is doing what he can to avoid breaking the vow he made to a woman he believes to be dead. And George is very purposeful to make this clear to the reader. At the end of Jamie 3, talked about it already, Jamie punches Red Ron at Connington in the face. Awesome. Good job, Jamie. We like this violence. Um, I don't know. Whatever. Uh, in Jamie 4, we then find his party arriving at Castle Derry. A maester greets them, and Jamie responds. It says, Jerry was on my way, lied Jamie. River Run will keep, and if perchance the siege had ended before he reached the castle, he would be spared the need to take up arms against House Tully. This happens immediately after his confrontation with Red Ronnet, which seems to indicate that Jamie was specifically reminded of the vows he swore Catelyn through his defense of Brienne's honor, which is very interesting. There are three strong reasons to believe that Jamie changed their course after the Red Ronnet confrontation. I don't think this is something people argue about, but just to make it clear, um, the Maester is surprised by their arrival, indicating that this was not their original route uh, that Jamie's party intended. They switched courses. Um, Derry is northeast of Harrenhal. River Run is to the northwest. So quite literally, this trip was the opposite direction of where they were going. And Jamie literally tells us in his POV that he's lying about Derry being on their way. So Jamie's coming out of his way and then thinks about not having to or not having to take up arms against House Tully. Then in Jamie 4, when he is planning uh, his parlay with uh, BB Beefart, I mean, Brennan Blackfish, it says, uh, I'll wear a gorget when I treat with them, said Jamie with half a smile. I mean to offer him generous terms. If he could end this siege without bloodshed, then it could not be said he had taken up arms against House Tully. So, all that being said, I think what is clear is that in Jamie's mind, he has kept his vows to Catelyn Stark. In Feast, they are driving force that literally alters the arc of his story 
and uh, the arc of his story and the decisions that he makes within that book. I think the question in wins is then turned over to both Lady Stoneheart and the reader to determine if we believe he has kept faith with these vows. So I've talked for a while here. What do you guys think on that one? Well, in Storm Swords, Jamie makes it clear that his entire reason for sending Brienne out into the Riverlands with Oathkeeper is to keep those vows, right? He says, I want you to find Sansa first and get her somewhere safe. How else are the two of us going to make good our stupid vows to your precious dead Lady Catelyn? So, yes, this is very, very important to him. Uh, it's, it is, like you said, it's the, the thing that's motivating him. That's the end of Storm. So throughout Feast, that's what he's always in his mind but i found it interesting that he's not suddenly become concerned with the welfare of children in general or even sons of stark in particular but he's concerned with fulfilling his vows he's still thinking mainly of himself he's still jamie lannister even though he's improving right but for the first time in his adult life he's thinking for himself and that is a start, I think. So much is made of Jamie's vows to Catelyn, especially by Jamie. But she also made a vow to him, and it was a pretty simple one, his freedom for delivering his her message to Tyrion. As Jamie thinks, she's putting her hope in Tyrion, not in me. His task was to get to King's Landing and compel Tyrion to keep his promise to free the Stark girls upon Jamie's release. So obviously the million dollar question is whether Lady Stoneheart will see these things in the same light as the readers do, or as, as Jamie does. We're in possession of many more details than she is, and maybe we're a little more reasonable than she is too. She's got a lot of prejudicial information that she's dealing with as well. So I, I think that where this is where the trial by battle is going to come in like Sander Clegane being tried in that same hollow hill by a different cohort of the brotherhood without banners for the unanswerable question of his guilt in the death of Micah the butcher's boy the question of Jamie keeping his vows to lady stoneheart i think is ultimately going to have to be left up to the gods yeah and it's interesting that lady stoneheart is bringing out this theme of him being misunderstood you know carrying it on he's had this his whole life since the Ares incident and um now he's in a position where he's going to be judged and he's being misunderstood again for an off offhand remark about um sending his regards so it'll be interesting hey i'm ryan reynolds recently i asked mint mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation they said yes and then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Okay, so on the subject of this trial by battle that we've been alluding to, who could Jamie ask, as a champion, given his sword hand 
is missing and that he can claim that he's been weakened by circumstance. What do you think, Kyle? <laughs> I wonder who could potentially stand in his place. Um, I think there's, to kind of back up, I think the trial is so fascinating because obviously we just said earlier we expect Jamie and Brienne to both get out of this, so something has to happen that can allow for them to both get out. Um, I wanted to present two two different options before we talk about who we maybe think will be Jamie's champion. An alternate option, really good theory from good friend Micah Clark. He wrote a theory called uh, A Tragedy of Three Nights, in which he argues that Heil Hunt could potentially serve as Brienne's champion in a potential trial by battle, ultimately being killed by Jamie and then allowing Brienne and Jamie to move forward with their arcs. Uh, very much so worth reading the theory in full because I, I won't do it justice here, but um, it does work structurally nice because it gives Heil a nice end to his arc as well. Works as him potentially redeeming himself for his wrongdoings that he has done to Brienne uh, in the past. Uh, it also provides a method for both uh, Jamie and Brienne to survive the uh, Lady Stoneheart encounter. Option two, I do think to actually answer your question, there's just such strong resonance to Brienne standing in as Jamie's champion. First off, like we said, we've seen Tyrion championed by Bronn and Oberyn in two trial by battles, and then we expect to see Cersei defended by Robert Strong in a trial by battle to come in the near future. So seems to be a great deal of resonance to Jamie joining his siblings and being defended by a champion, probably Brienne, during a trial by combat instead of directly participating. One thing that also came to me regarding Jamie's vows is that if he is granted a trial by combat, he could potentially use his vows as reasoning for not participating. He is not to bear arms against House Stark or Tully. Would this mean he's not allowed to participate in a trial where he's being accused by Lady Stoneheart, a Stark, or a Tully? Not exactly sure, but it's something that I think is kind of interesting to think about. Hmm, uh, that's a very good point. I definitely think that he's going to have a champion and it will be Brienne. It's an interesting possibility for how he maneuvers that into being, though. My pick for the BWB champion, however, is Lem Lemoncloak, because I think the resonance uh, with Sandor's trial that I just mentioned, and I expect there's going to be a lot of parallels because we've already seen one trial by the Brotherhood in this same place, think that will uh, continue with him wearing the hound's helm that's really going to just continue those those parallels lem has we see at the end of feast for crows that he's become a broken man he embodies thoros's statement some of my brothers were good when this began and his winds of winter arc i fear will be somewhat short but our patron, Dan the Good, wonders if Lem might have anything significant to say to Jamie before he dies or, or whatever happens with him. And of course, he's referring to our secret identity theory in which we suggest that Lem Lemoncloak is actually Rhaegar's friend and former squire Richard Lonmouth. So yes, definitely, that's always been my feeling about this theory, if, if it was to come to pass. Uh, Definitely, Jamie is going to be the one to blow that identity open. He's he's the one that knew him, right? So he will recognize him. And so, you know, Lem could, Lem, Lonmouth, could reveal something new 
or at least add to what we know about Rhaegar and Lyanna. There's thoughts that he might have been with Rhaegar when he seized Lyanna. Uh, so definitely we could, in that way that George likes to do, the kind of slow reveal where he gives us a little information here and a little bit more over there in someone else's arc. This could just be part of that piling on of the slow build of the background of that story. So anyways, time will tell. Uh, whether that's true or not, but Lem's time, in my opinion, is definitely short. So I don't think when Winds of Winter finally arrives in our hands, we're going to have very long to wait <laughs> to find that out. Yeah, it could be good night, Lem. See you later. And let's assume that it's a reasonable assumption now that Bren is going to stand in as a champion for Jamie. Would it be fitting, after the bear pit incident, that Brienne could now save Jamie? And I would say yes, to have some kind of evenness between them is a theme we saw right from the start. Brienne certainly is not a damsel in distress, and so having her kind of even the scores would be fitting and would address this sort of imbalance of him saving her. What do you think, Lady Gwyn? Oh, yes, yes. Uh, resonance, consonance, congruence, <laughs> all of the above, any of the above. Plus, you get Brienne standing next to a helpless Jamie with a sword that is uh, foreshadowed in his Weirwood Stump dream. So, yeah, I think this is happening. Yep, agreed. I think uh, for so many of those reasons, there just seems to be so much so much resonance to Brienne standing in for for Jamie in a trial by combat. I can't imagine George looking at that as an option and not wanting to capitalize on it, right? It seems too juicy for what he's built. Mm -hmm. Definitely agree. Okay, let's stay with Jamie and Brienne. Their bond is going to grow further, given that they're now captives together again, which is how their bond began in the first place. <laughs> So this pair are growing extremely close emotionally. We've already seen it, and it's they're only going to get closer. Given Jamie's already burned Cersei's letter pleading for his help, is Jamie now in a triangle where he must choose between the virtue of, of Brienne and the poison of Cersei? So since the resolution of this triangle is far from over, if Jamie can get free of the BWB, could he return to King's Landing? So a couple of questions there, Lady Gwyn. Well, I, eventually, yes, I think he could. But I think that this pair might have a mission in the Winds of Winter and uh, will likely continue to involve them keeping their faith with Catelyn Stark, the vows that they made to her. Perhaps they'll continue the search for Sansa, or maybe they'll head north seeking news of Arya. You know, we mentioned, I think in our regular episode on this topic, that the BWB probably have their suspicions about the Arya that was sent north with Roose Bolton. Uh, they may even have a spy already in Winterfell, but Jaime does actually seem to know that that girl was a feigned girl so he, I feel like it's very possible that those two could get involved in this um, mission to figure out what exactly is going on up in Winterfell uh, which actually could play into the the promise uh, that the 
the BWB have made to Lady Stoneheart to give her dead Freys and Boltons. Uh, they specifically say that in Feast for Crows and all the Boltons seem to be at Winterfell. So <laughs> obviously if that is the case, they're going to have to go there or some of them will have to go there. Uh, if they did that, that would get uh, Brienne in a position to fulfill her vow to avenge Renly, which as our patron B-word points out, would make both Brienne and Jamie kingslayers. And that would be a beautiful parallel, wouldn't it? Oh, yeah. I love that. <laughs> I saw her tweet that, I think, um, yesterday. That That is quite quite interesting. Um, I wonder if that's kind of entered George's mind. It certainly could be. I love this question. The, the, the virtue of Brienne versus the poison of Cersei is so interesting, right? And in the novels, like really quickly, because I know we're going to talk about themes in a little bit. It's so interesting that Jamie has stood by Cersei through, through Cersei, many poor decisions, many evil decisions that Cersei has made. And he decides to end it in, in turn on her, if you will, when she's actually asking for help, when she tr truly needs help. Right. It's not like this is a ruse or anything like that. She is actually in a, a very poor position now. And so she, he's now choosing to, ignore her poison with also poison by turning his back on a family member. I don't know. It's just an interesting little, little thing about when he has finally decided to turn against his sister. Our next question, a shout out to patrons, Quarren Halfhand, Christine and Jordana, who all wanted to know about something we haven't talked about in quite a while. The Valenquire. So the Valenquire prophecy haunts Cersei, a vision of her own doom. It states that when your tears have drowned you, the Valenquire shall wrap his hands about your pale white throat and choke the life from you. So could this mean that Jaime will ultimately kill Cersei? In Game of Thrones, the show, they die together. In the books, will he also die with Cersei. I'll begin. G given that Valenquire means little brother in High Valyrian and that Jaime is the younger of the twins, uh, a detail which is conveyed early and without much fanfare, all Valenquire roads could lead to Jaime, not Tyrion as Cersei believes. They might die together, as George does love some kind of Shakespearean type tragedy. But perhaps it won't be as romantic as Cersei might be imagining it. Perhaps it will be in a moment of great conflict, like the Valenquire moment. What do you think, Lady Gwyn? Well, I, I think, first of all, nothing is going to turn out the way Cersei thinks it's going to turn out. And, <laughs> but I do, I do think, and we're going to talk about this in a much greater depth when we cover Cersei, probably in a few weeks from now, but... The that the Valencar, all the parts, the various parts of it are the prime motivator of her arc in A Feast for Crows. Everything that happens to her and everything that she does in A Feast for Crows is pretty much based on her fears about about this prophecy in where Jamie is repeatedly noted to be younger. I do think that absolutely he's going to be the one to kill her. But I also think that there's not going to be anywhere for his character to go from that point. And so the tragedy of Jamie Lannister will be that he'll also die with her. Uh, how that happens, 
I don't know, George has really yet to reveal that or, or give us many more hints about that, but I expect it's going to be tragic. I think we'll end up feeling things that we've never felt for Cersei, and that all of our hopes for the character of Jamie Lannister are going to be shattered when his thoughts from A Storm of Swords, which go like this, uh, we will die together as we were born together. And those are also echoed by Cersei in the Kevin Lannister epilogue. When those thoughts are proved to be prophetic, all of our kind of hopes and dreams for him having a redemption arc and living happily ever after are just going to go down the tubes. Thanks, George. <laughs> yep. <laughs> it's a pretty safe bet with George uh, a lot of the times, isn't it? I agree that I think tragedy for the Lannisters is probably where both of both Cersei... Jamie and maybe Tyrion as well are are on tragic arcs, tragedies. And, and moreover, I think the themes of the story indi- indicate convergence to this idea, right? So um, to answer this question, I think we can look at the themes surrounding Tywin Lannister and Ned Stark. Many in the fandom have juxtaposed these two um, in their legacies that have been left behind by the two men. Ned's is one of love that has the Northmen marching for the Ned's girl, and Tywin's legacy is so thematically tied to decay, so much so that the author literally has his body rapidly decaying on his funeral beer. Love builds, fear decays, and George isn't really trying to hide it from us in this case. Jamie is, of course, a character seeking redemption, but also tied to Lannister themes. In the novels, if Jamie kills Cersei and then himself, I don't think we're going to be meant to and cheer at it. It's going to taste like poison. A brother killing his sister, once lover, and mother of his uh, of his multiple children. If the themes of House Lannister are fear and decay, it's hard to imagine this final moment feeling good. And is there any ideas what could kind of prompt this moment? What what kind of brings it all to a head? I think it's. It sure seems like wildfire is a potential option. Cersei potentially either accidentally or ordering the burning of the city seems quite cyclical to Jamie's arc. Yeah, I think you're right. So Jamie would then end his arc as he began his began his career in the Kingsguard by saving King's Landing from a ruler who would destroy it. What do you think, Lady Gwyn? Well, gosh. More consonants. I mean, killing someone to prevent a wildfire disaster? Who would have thought Jamie Lannister would do that? Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it seems it seems so interesting to, you know, we start with Jamie having, the, we first know him as being the Kingslayer, right? Like, that's his first, like, identity that we know him as. And this is this bad thing. He, like we talked about earlier, he violated his political office. He murdered the king. And then we find out, well, maybe it's not quite that simple. Maybe it wasn't as bad as we think. Seems quite interesting that to then, at the end of his arc, put him back in that same exact situation and having your readers then having to reevaluate that all over again, only this time it's Cersei, right? I can, certainly seems like a, an option that George could make us deal with again as readers yeah definitely the second time we go through it we get to see it on page rather than a backstory it would be interesting for a variety of reasons and let's speak of jamie's villainous side because we all want to think of him as this good guy but he infamously threw young and innocent bran from a winterfell tower 
after he caught the boy, after the boy caught him and his sister having sex. Defenders of Jamie argue he was merely defending his family, yet in sleeping with a queen, he was potentially destabilizing the realm. Bran lived, and so what will happen when our green seer in training realizes that it was Jamie Lannister who threw him and tried to kill him? Will there be a need for retribution on Bran's part, Lady Gwyn? Well, you know, we're, we definitely haven't seen the last of this in Jamie's arc. In, in fact, we've hardly seen the first of it. Uh, he thinks of it rarely, uh, if at all. But uh, my guess is it will begin to weigh upon him as he continues along his his growth arc. And we're going to see growth from Jamie keeping his vows for himself to Jamie being more reflective about what he's done in the past. But in the end, I don't think retribution will be needed, and nor do I think it will be offered, Is would be my guess. Jamie will do what he's always done and punish himself along the way, and fate will continue to help out. Of course, he's already been maimed, which could be seen as a figurative retribution that's already happened. Remember that his views on, on cripples expressed when Bran Stark was lying paralyzed were, if the boy does live, he'll be a cripple, worse than a cripple, a grotesque give me a good clean death. Tyrion didn't think much of that at the time, but Jamie has had to face those views in himself and accept something that he once thought he never could. And now, you know, I think in the end, he's going to need to attend the reckoning with Bran potentially, but I, I don't think that uh, further retribution is going to be demanded by Bran Stark. Yeah, agreed. I, I think I just agree with your, your point there. I don't think I... I think it's going to come up, come up again. I mean, it hasn't been revealed from Bran, right? It's kept a secret. Bran is not able to see who it was. And of course, that's partially just to make the story work because he can't wake up and be like, it was Jamie that would change the events, right? But I do think it, it will be dealt with. Um, but I don't think additional retribution will be required from Bran whenever he does remember. It's an interesting question, but as someone that wants to see Bran, there's all the thoughts, is Bran going to kind of turn to the dark side because Blood Raven is telling him to immerse himself in the darkness and what, what is that a metaphor for? I, I just want to see Bran, you know, resolve these issues in himself and move on. And he's not going to have moved on if he's, if he's bloodthirsty for Jamie Lannister. And I think it would serve both of their arcs well if they could find a forgiveness between them and some kind of understanding if Jamie has to earn that I don't know but I wouldn't like to see kind of Bran tainted by bloodthirsty revenge okay so a lot of people talk about the redemption in Jamie's story although a lot of people disagree that it's a redemption arc in the classic sense, but there are still redemptive beats going through the story ever since the bathhouse. Is true redemption possible for a character who began the book almost with this attempted child murder? Can we ever really, we go back to the tabula rasa idea, did he, did he ever really have a blank slate or do we just kind of draw a line under his bad persona and let him build a more palatable personality? 
I, I think about Stannis Baratheon and his great quote. I don't usually invoke Stannis, but here we go. <laughs> a good act does not wash out the bad, nor a bad act the good. You know, in this case, the act was very bad, not just pushing Bran, but what he was attempting to cover up. And so he must take responsibility for the position he put himself in to begin with. I don't think you can just forgive him for defending his family. I think that's a weak position. It, yeah, that's that's just too easy for me. What do you think, Lady Gwyn? Yeah, I, I don't think that redemption is wholly possible, although... Davos's onion and Thoros's there are those who say it does not matter how a man begins but only how he ends might actually hint slightly otherwise so let's go with Jamie will continue to improve himself and he just might move beyond self-improvement for his own sake to doing something truly altruistic which would actually bring him full circle right in the end I think that's why I believe that he's going to die with Cersei. It's that full circle. So you think that his kind of quest for honour is at its heart a little bit self-centred, perhaps? Right now, it appears to be, because he thinks about saving his honour and keeping his vows. He's he's not so much worried about what really happened to Sansa or Arya. And is this the difference between him and Brienne currently? The fact that she is acting on in good faith and not not just to appear noble she has got a noble soul yeah that's that is her identity so i think the more time he spends with her he he's going to learn how to be a truly altruistic person you know i don't want to digress very far with this but last night we watched groundhog day um you know come on classic movie <laughs> but i was watching it and i'm thinking Oh, this guy's on a self-improvement arc to beat the band, isn't he? And it dawns on me that he's kind of like Jamie Lannister because he's got this really lovely, kind woman that he's that he really, really likes. And he starts doing all these things to kind of impress her. And then he realizes that that the you know what it does for himself, for his own soul, is actually is actually where it's at. You know, it, he doesn't even if he ends up without the girl, he's it's enough that he has made these improvements in himself and that he's learned how to love somebody and everything. So I don't know. I think uh, wherever that leaves us. <laughs> no, I think it's uh, fascinating. I think, I think actually that digression is like exactly what George wants as a writer because George is not, and he, he said this himself, he's not like a big person for providing answers. He likes asking questions, right? And he does that in his, in, a Song of Ice and Fire all of the time. And I think the question of true redemption, is that even a thing? I think what George does is he interrogates these ideas, right? He's the trope smasher, the trope breaker. And so he says, true redemption, that's something that happens in fantasy. That's a, you know, in George's world, maybe true redemption is as much a part of high fantasy as the dragons or the White Walkers, right? And maybe what we are supposed to come away with is I don't think you, you know, you close the last pages of Dream and turn around and go, you know, yep, Jamie and, and Theon and whoever else, they redeemed themselves 100 percent. I think you're still supposed to see that answer is not so clear. It's not supposed to be so clear. You know, we all and, you know, what I, what I have really for, for true redemption is that, uh, you know, as humans, we all have failed and will continue failing. But we always have the choice 
to try and be better at whatever our next decision is. And we're going to fail again at that sometimes. And I think that's really where George is going with redemption and why it's really interesting and a great question. Excellent, Kyle. So is TV show Brand's statement to Jamie that he wouldn't be where he ended up without Jamie's act a valid take? Will the books go there as well? What do you think, Lady Gwynne? Yeah, I think it's I think it's valid and philosophically true. Jamie's impulsive action at the beginning of Game of Thrones sets in motion something for Bran that, if Bloodraven is to believe, was always meant to be. So if Bran is instrumental to the end game, then so was Jamie's act of violence. It, they think think of it as kind of a dark mirror to Baylor Breakspeare dying so that Duncan the Tall could save Riella and baby Rhaegar so that Danny and John could exist to affect the end game, right? In the end, I think George really wants us to dig into that endless chain of events and time and see how all of these threads and events are interlinked, both the good and the bad. You, you can't get to this point that he wants to get us to without all of those things that came before, good or bad. And that's, you know, going to be the climax. We're going to be sitting there looking back and saying all those things were truly important. Yeah. Um, again, it's so fascinating, right? It, it I can't help but uh, keep thinking of Davos and Stannis here and, you know, a good act washing up the bad or vice versa. I could see something not quite Stannis-like with Bran, you know, Jamie is going to be facing like that stark side of the question with Lady Stoneheart, right? Like that's almost him facing what he's done in the story to House Stark. It feels like that's Lady Stoneheart. Yes, he might have to deal with it with Bran again, but I could see something in the end like that where, you know, has he paid for his crimes? And I think we're supposed to continue asking if he has or if you have to keep paying for your actions of the past. So anyway, yeah, um, fascinating. I could ramble about that for a very long time, but I won't. <laughs> okay so on to the final question you can be as wordy or succinct as you want to be guys we've heard today about some of jamie's good deeds and some of his bad and there's also the small matter of saving king's landing from Ares' plot do we consider jamie to be a hero or a villain or something in between what do you think, Lady Gwyn? <laughs> well, I believe that Jamie is a Byronic hero. He's that kind of dark, moody, you know, doesn't really present as a good guy, but he does good things that people never really recognize, which I guess in the end that amounts to something in between. He's, he's everything we've said. He's, he's, he's got good and bad, and he's uh, maybe someone that ended up started out bad and ends up good or he's he's an onion that's half black and half not black <laughs> he's he's just a little bit of all of those things that george the theme that george keeps pounding us with the grayness of human beings there's so many characters where you can't you could ask this question and you just can't pin down you know on the scale you're just not not sure and i'm sure this is what george is going for he says that his heroes do bad things and that his villains do redeeming things so in the middle there's this kind of gray stew and i guess that's where jamie lannister is as we know him 
resides. Have you got any takes, Kyle? Yeah, what I would really say about this, and my mind with Jamie is just going back to Ares specifically, right? What's so fascinating about Jamie, and he talks about this, of course, within his own point of view, is that his arc, if you consider his arc really beginning at the murder of King Ares, probably one of his greater deeds, we have all the information on Ares. We knew what he was going to do to the city, and we knew what kind of mental state Ares was in. Jamie did save thousands and thousands of people from 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 doom right from that but that good act and you could argue that i guess if you wanted to labeled him as a villain to the world so right away from the start of jamie's arc at that point things are immediately misconstrued on both sides so it all then comes back down to perspective and it can be the perspective of people in universe or your perspective as the reader as to what you weigh or don't weigh. And then that goes into your own beliefs. So you can see how this becomes quite confusing as to what you think makes him a hero, what you think makes him a villain. And as you said, you can do that with many different characters within the story. So yeah, I would certainly say it's somewhere in between because he saves the city, but then you push a kid out of a window. It's like, well, how do, <laughs> how on earth do we weigh these two things? That was good. And that was absolutely horrible. So I think you have to land somewhere in between. Sometimes he is a hero. Sometimes he is a villain. And you hope that the next time he has to make a decision, it's better than when he made the wrong decision. So I, I'm wishy-washy right in the middle of it, I suppose. Yeah, and I'm sure there's a few few twists and turns in his arc. And perhaps they won't all be for the good. We'll have to evaluate him at the end. But I'm sure George would enjoy knowing that we're having this very discussion okay kyle thanks so much for joining us you're a really great guest today you had some fantastic answers and you're very sharp tell us where to find you and your podcast called the blood of the podcast yeah, absolutely. Thanks again so much for, for having me. This was so much fun to, to come on and do. Um, you can find me on Twitter at KWDent2. You can find the podcast at, at Blood of the Podcast. My, you can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, all that good stuff. My co-host, Christina, a.k.a. Lady Triple. Uh, we've done a lot of survey episodes covering Season 8 of A Game of Thrones. We cover A Song of Madness on Twitter. Uh, and we do plan on covering House of the Dragon whenever that does happen. Um, additionally, we do have some Feast Dance reread like minisodes that will be returning soon, hopefully. We are also partnered, the, the big thing I wanted to say, we're partnered with the Cancer Research Institute, um, whose mis mission is to save more lives by fueling the discovery and development of powerful immunotherapies to cure all types of cancers. And recently, they've also expanded that research to uh, conclude additional ways that their immunotherapies uh, can treat and combat coronavirus. So if you do want to donate to that, you can find it pinned at KWDent2. Um, I think it's on the internet and a couple other places as well. But yeah, guys, thanks again for, for having me. Really appreciate it. Thank you for being here. Thank you for doing that and saying those things. And we'll put a link to that in the description uh, on the YouTube as well. So, oh, perfect. Uh, Thank you. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, you're really, really great guests. We loved having you. I want to thank all of you audience members for being here, for watching with us uh, and participating in the chat or just uh, watching. And uh, 
you know, enjoying the discussion about Jamie as as we have done. Thank you to our future listeners, because, of course, this will be hosted on YouTube and out as a podcast version within the next day or so. So thanks, y'all, for being here. And speaking of the future, we will be back in two weeks with an episode all about Lady Stoneheart. And we will get to that question. We had a great question in the chat about Lady Stoneheart. We'll answer that question and more in uh, two weeks time. So we'll be back for that. In the meantime, folks, you haven't already done so check out our uh, third episode in our Winds of Winter Primer series, which is all about the Riverlands for more about Jamie, Brienne and Lady Stoneheart. Yeah, and there'll be many more live streams to come, starting with Stoneheart in two weeks. If you want to support the podcast, please know we have a Patreon campaign and we offer shout outs and all kinds of things, early access. And you can look us up on Patreon and be a patron of the show if you want to. So goodbye and we'll see you in two weeks. Thank you very much, all of you. Okay, yeah. And bye for now. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.